Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Tony Fieldson, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Uh, doing great, Bill. Thanks so much. Glad Good. to be here. Good. Glad to have you on. Today we're going to talk with Tony about uh, compelling reasons to believe in the church. And uh, so, Tony, with that, why don't you start us off just giving us kind of a brief bio about yourself, who you are, and then we'll jump into it. Okay, sounds good. Well, I grew up in Southern California, and uh, when I was 22, I joined the church. had a couple friends who introduced the church to me, and I ended up serving a mission a few years later into Mexico City when I was 24. And uh got home from my mission and got married about a year later. I've been married now for about three years, no kids yet. And I am a high school teacher. I teach over in Anaheim, California. I'm currently teaching history, world history this year, but I'm also credentialed to teach math and Spanish. And um still currently live in, in Southern California, just uh about 30 miles south of L.A. Sunny Southern California. Awesome. Yeah, so why don't we jump into... uh what you've put together here, which I think is a fascinating article. For the listeners, this article uh, should be available on the episode when we get finished and have this all uh, uploaded and published, and you can check out the, the full article there. But we're going to try to hit on the major points tonight and talk about some of the things that that uh, give us reason to believe in the church. Tony, start us off with your introduction and give us give us kind of a way to kind of begin to open up and see this the way you've put this together. Sounds great. Thanks. Um, I wanted to start off with talking about something that I call a plant analogy. So I like to compare our testimony to a plant. So um, I believe that our testimonies, like a plant, they need two things to grow. Uh, the first thing that they need is they need protection against harmful influences. So just like weeds are removed from a plant to protect it from being damaged, we need to know how to protect against influences that can damage our faith. And there are two primary ways that I see that our faith can be damaged. One way is when people criticize the church and uh, there are many efforts within the church, including your podcast, that have sought to help people deal with those criticisms and still be able to find room for faith. And another way our faith can be damaged is when we as church members say or do things that can harm others' testimony. So, for example, when we teach that the prophets of the Restoration were more free of error than they sometimes were and harm people's faith when they find out about some of the human imperfections these prophets might have exhibited from time to time. Um, the second thing our testimonies need in order to grow is spiritual nourishment. So while it's good to pull weeds from a plant, a plant will not grow if that's all we do. For a plant to grow, we need to expose it to light and give it water as well. So in the same manner, in order to help our testimonies grow, we need to protect against threats to our faith, faith and we need to give our testimony spiritual nourishment. Now, um, spiritual nourishment can come in many ways, but what I would like to focus on for this podcast is, is how studying about the restored church and gaining a testimony about it can nourish our plants of, of testimony and help them grow. In a recent conference talk, President Uchtdorf said, A personal testimony of the gospel and the church is the most important thing you can earn in this life. It will not only bless and guide you during this life, but it will also have a direct bearing on your life throughout eternity. So um, 
I guess we can go ahead and uh, jump right into it. What I what I like to talk about is uh, I like to boil it down to five evidences. I believe that there's five evidences that Mormonism is inspired of God. And as we learn about these things, um, it can strengthen our testimony. Four of the evidences can be understood through human logic, and one of the evidences can be understood by spiritual communication from God to our to our spirits. Now, I don't claim that these evidences absolutely prove Mormonism is true, but I do, however, believe that there is a compelling cumulative case that can be built. Excellent, Tony. I appreciate uh, giving us that kind of introduction. So with that, we're going to to jump into some of these. And uh, and again, I'm going to remind the listeners, uh, what we're going to talk about is is perhaps half or less of, of Tony's full article. We want to make sure that you check that out. Uh, it will be linked to this episode. Let's start with number one. You've got Fruits of Inspiration from God. Uh, help us understand what you're talking about there. Definitely. Well, Christ gave his followers a method for discerning true prophets from false ones. He said in the Bible, Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Wherefore, by your fruits you shall know them. So um, also in the Book of Mormon, we learn that everything that inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. So... Um, I would say that most people agree that God is the embodiment of all that is wise and good and loving. So one barometer for judging if something is inspired of God is if it helps the quality of people's lives improve and helps them to have a more God-like character. And I believe Mormonism has uh, many good fruits that do prove that it is inspired of God according to what Christ said in the New Testament. So um, I just wanted to talk about a couple of the fruits that I think stand out the most in the church. Number one is the centrality of Christ in our religion. Of course, the church is named after Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ is mentioned almost 4,000 times in the Book of Mormon, which is a mention on average of once every 1.7 verses, which is even more often than the New Testament. Um, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants are additional and independent witnesses of the resurrection for an increasingly skeptical world. Um, and we learn more about the atonement of Jesus Christ through modern revelation, in addition to what we know from the Bible. So through modern revelation, we learn that Christ uh, bled from every pore of his body, um, which gives us more insight into the extent of his suffering for us. We learn that also Christ suffered for our sorrows, pains, and sicknesses, in addition to our sins. Um, we know that through the atonement of Christ, people who died without an opportunity to learn about the gospel will still have an opportunity to be saved and we know that through the atonement of Christ, um, God, because of God's power, we can eventually be transformed um, into a God like our Father, which shows the power of God as well. And um, these doctrines that have been revealed about the atonement through modern-day revelation, they're unique to the Latter-day Saints, and they preach a Christ that's more loving and powerful than in any other religion that I know of. So that's one fruit. Um, another one is devotion to the faith. Uh, active Mormons, they give 10% of their income to help build up the church. There are no paid positions in the church. Um, every person has a specific responsibility within the church to um, serve in the various callings in the ward. Um, every year, millions of members, young and old, embark on missions abroad to help others learn about Christ. And um, these missions are not only unpaid, but they generally cost a good amount of money. Um, there's a recent blog post by a non-member um, called Six Reasons Why Mormons Are Beating Baptists. And one of those six reasons, he says this, he says, Mormon leaders ask a lot of their members. As our circle of Mormon friends grows and grows, I'm always amazed at the level of their church involvement compared to evangelicals. From giving tithing to service to teaching to raw number of hours in the church building, Mormons are simply doing more. Um, 
He says, if you're a faithful Mormon, you're not, you're not living a 95% secular life like so many evangelicals. A Mormon is truly countercultural. Um, another great category is religious education. We know that Latter-day Saint youth, they receive an impressive regimen of religious education during their formative years. They start going, they start attending three hours of, of church services from the time they're born and, um, experience, you know, they attend other meetings throughout the week. They're taught the gospel and family home evening lessons every Monday night. And during high school, they go to a seminary class every morning before school. And uh, most many people serve missions. And also when they come home, they attend institute classes while they're going to college. And um, there are three impressive statistics that stem from the above dose of this uh, religious education our youth receive. Number one, Mormon youth, they stick to the church when they're adults at a higher rate than any other religion. And I posted a link to a study about that. Um, also, in the, rec- the recently highly acclaimed book, American Grace, it found that Latter-day Saints as a whole, men and women, have the strongest attachment to their faith of any other religion studied. Also, Mormons are rated higher than any other Christian denomination for knowledge of the Bible and Christianity. And I have a link to a study from the Pew Research Center on that. And also, as Mormons gain more secular education, they're the most likely of any Christian denomination to increase in religious devotion. And I have a link to a study on that as well. Um, Another fruit of the gospel is the quality of marriage and family life. We know that family is really important to the church. The church has the largest family history database in the world, and members have a strong desire to learn about and honor their ancestors, and marriage and families are seen as eternal. So we have an added commitment to preserve our marriages and families because they're seen as extending into the eternities. We have temples that are all about sealing marriages and families for eternity. Once a week, we have family home evenings that are supposed to help strengthen families and um, I think many non-members know that families are important to us and that um, I think it's very important that although Mormon families aren't perfect, we really do strive to put an emphasis on family. Uh, another fruit is selfless service. You know, Christ, Christ asked us to take care of the poor and needy and said that his true disciples show love one for another. And, um, you know, church members, they fast one, once a month from two meals and donate the money they would have spent on those two meals to help the poor and the needy. And we also are very famous for our uh, disaster relief efforts and humanitarian efforts as well. And I have some links to some of the specifics that we do in the church. We go at the extra mile. Um, another fruit is morals. Um, there's a newly released book called Relationships in America by the Austin Institute. And um, they found that um, the Church of Jesus Christ is more effectively passing on classic Christian cultural beliefs and attitudes and practices about chastity and marriage than, than any other church. Um, just one example of that is um, among regular churchgoers, so three times a month or more, 57% of evangelicals had premarital sex with their future spouse, as did 64% of traditional Catholics, but just 14% of Mormons did. Um, we also have a reputation for being good, kind, and dependable people. Uh, a lot of people say that Mormons are some of the nicest people they've ever known. I have colleagues at school that teach with me that said that they've, they've noticed time and time again that the Mormon students they've had were on the, on the whole more uh, more well-behaved and a pleasure to have in class than students from other religions. A lot of people, they hire Mormons because they have a reputation for being trustworthy and hardworking. And, um, it's kind of funny, but the news reports a Mormon caught doing something dishonorable as surprising. Um, also, the last fruit I want to talk about is that women are revered and empowered in the church. Um, in that book I talked about, American Grace, it noted that Latter-day Saint women are unique in being overwhelmingly satisfied with their role in church leadership. Um, also, women preach from the pulpit regularly in our in our services. Modern prophets have expressed their reverence for women by calling them the crowning creation of God. Um, 
Also, in our doctrine, unlike every other Christian church, Eve is, Eve is actually seen as a hero for her decision. We honor Eve and we honor, honor womanhood by honoring her decision. And also, women are empowered in the church because of a restored knowledge of a mother in heaven and uh, many other things. So as we're talking about fruits, I would just like to remind the listeners that, like Christ said, a, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. You know, so I think that no no one fruit of Joseph's efforts is very compelling by itself, but it's really the combination of fruits that are compelling. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I want to talk about a couple of these. So I absolutely agree with you on across the board on the things you've mentioned, and I'll just hit on a couple of them. Uh, you talked about women there at the end, and I think often, of course, it's a real hot-button issue in the church right now for those uh, on what they call the blogger knackle, talking about Mormonism and trying to delve into ideas and questions of perhaps an increased role for women in the church. And I think that's important, and I'm okay with that, and I and I certainly support that. But at the same time, just to make note that in comparison with other churches, yes, there might be other churches that allow women ministers, but I don't know of any other church that has women as involved with the various organizations in a local congregation as the LDS church does. And I think that's valuable to bring up because it, it kind of gets lost in the noise of talking about women's ordination. I, uh, I also wanted to hit on, you talked about the centrality of Christ and, and I very much agree with that. Christ is, is certainly prevalent in our scriptures, uh, specifically the book of Mormon, which is, you know, pertinent just to the Latter-day Saint tradition. And, uh, and you also talked about devotion you talked about the idea that Latter-day Saints are, on average, more devoted to their faith. And I, I think that's a value as well. Some of the things you, you left out a little bit, I know that, again, we're trying to kind of shorten this up. But uh, you, the health of Latter-day Saints, you know, Mormons, on average, live longer than others around them. I think that the, the Word of Wisdom is a big attribute uh, to place as uh, support for why that happens. Uh, but anyway, I just I just wanted to kind of concur with what you're saying. I think within within Mormonism, there certainly are lots of Christian fruits uh, that we can look to that evidence that there is something more than just a, a coincidence going on within our tradition. Definitely, totally agree. So the next one that you've got here is uh, is eyewitnesses. This is one of my favorite subjects because this gets into some more of the the historical points that uh, I like to have discussions on. Uh, share with us what you see as far as uh, compelling reasons to believe with the eyewitnesses. Yeah, definitely. I love this one too. So uh, in the Bible, Christ says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So we know, for example, in a court of law, if there are multiple people that witnessed um, something, then it's it's more credible than if just one person did. So, you know, if there are other people that witnessed the divine visions and manifestations that Joseph claimed to experience, his claims would be a lot more credible than if he was, he was the only person to witness them. So, um, for example, we have eyewitnesses to the gold plates and an angel. So, for example, Martin Harris um, was quoted as saying, uh, somebody asked him one time, do you still believe that the Book of Mormon is true and that Joseph Smith was a prophet? And Martin Harris, he said, um, do I see the sun shining? Surely... Just as surely as the sun is shining on us, I saw the plates, I saw the angel. On Martin's deathbed also, somebody questioned his testimony, and uh, this is what Martin said. He said, the Book of Mormon is no fake. I know what I know. I have seen what I have seen, and I heard what I have heard. I have seen the gold plates from which the Book of Mormon is written. An angel appeared to me and others and testified to the truthfulness of the record. And this is a very important part right here. He says, and 
Had I been willing to have perjured myself and sworn falsely to the testimony I now, now bear, I could have been a rich man. And this is significant because even when uh, Martin Harris was hostile towards the church, he still didn't deny his testimony. And you, you think he would have at that point. It would have been easy to. Um, another witness to the gold plates, David Whitmer. Um, there was an anti-Mormon article that said that David denied his testimony. So David published his own response to that by saying, it is recorded in the American Encyclopedia that I have denied my testimony as one of the three witnesses to the divinity of the Book of Mormon. I will say once more to all mankind that I have never at any time denied that testimony or any part thereof. Um, so also during the translation process of the Book of Mormon, which was very impressive because it only took about 65 working days uh, to translate, 531-page book, um, there are some details recorded by the prophet's wife that make the translation process even more miraculous. So um, Emma said that at the time of translation, Joseph could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. Um, when Emma was asked if Joseph had dictated from the Bible or from any manuscript he had prepared earlier, she flatly denied those possibilities, and she said that he had neither manuscript nor book to read from. And she also told her son, Joseph Smith III, the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when acting as a scribe, your father would dictate hour after hour, and when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. So these, these are pretty miraculous things that seem like somebody would not be able to do if, if they were not translating an actual divine record under the inspiration of God. Um, the Kirtland Temple dedication is a pretty miraculous one, too. There are dozens of testimonies that, that talk about some pretty miraculous things happening, kind of like uh, echoing the day of Pentecost in the New Testament. One of the saints recorded these words. He said, A noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind, which filled the temple, and all the congregation simultaneously arose, being moved upon by an invisible power. Many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions. And this happened on the day of the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Um, some other people who were outside the temple, they saw some miraculous things happening also. Somebody named Prescindia Huntington, an early saint, recalled, On one occasion I saw angels clothed in <coughs> white walking upon the temple. It was during one of our monthly fast meetings when the saints were in the temple worshiping. A little girl came to my door and in wonder called me out, exclaiming, The meeting is on the top of the meeting house. I went to the door and there I saw on the temple angels clothed in white covering the roof from end to end um, another eyewitness category is the spiritual power Joseph received from the Lord many people testify of the spiritual power he received that seemed like m more power than just a regular uh, you know, non-profit human being so for example an early saint named Emmeline Wells wrote the power of God rested upon him to such a degree that on many occasions he seemed transfigured his expression was mild and almost childlike in repose and when addressing the people who loved him, it seemed to adoration. The glory of his countenance was beyond description. At other times, the great power of his manner seemed to shake the place on which we stood and penetrate the inmost soul of his hearers. Um, there's a, a day in church history that's now called um, the Day of God's Power. And it's when there are many saints who lay on the banks of the Mississippi River and they were sick. And one day Joseph Smith got up and Parley P. Pratt and Wilford Woodruff and others they um, have really detailed eyewitness accounts of how Joseph Smith received the power to heal not one, but dozens of people who were sick, some on the verge of dying, and he just instantly healed them, which is pretty amazing also. 
Um, I think another important point is that Joseph, he stayed loyal to the cause, even despite severe and consistent persecution. So, you know, if Joseph was a fraud, it's not very likely he would endure so much. He endured a lot of persecution and a lot of abuse, and he eventually died for the cause, you know. For example, the early Christians of the apostolic age, they made huge sacrifices and endured much persecution. And a lot of Christians believe in Christianity because of the sincerity of those those early saints. Um, another important one is the transfiguration of Brigham Young. This is a crucial event because there are many splinter groups of the church. And um, if Mormonism is true, which group which group of those stemming from Joseph is the right one? Well, um, this following event that I'm about to describe transfiguration of Brigham Young, it's well attested, and it convincingly establishes that after Joseph's death, God chose Brigham Young to be the next leader of the church. And it's interesting because there are not just one, but there are over a hundred people who um, witnessed this event. And it's accounted in uh, the book, Opening the Heavens, Accounts of Divine Manifestations by John Welch. And here's just two of the eyewitness accounts. James A. Little said, on this day, it was plainly manifest that the mantle of Joseph had rested upon President Young. The voice of the same spirit by which he, Joseph, spake, was this day sounded in our ears, so much so that I once unthoughtedly raised my head to see if it was not actually Joseph addressing the assembly. So this was on a day where, where um, there were several of the apostles speaking, and many people felt like Brigham Young's countenance and his voice changed to, to look and sound like Joseph's. Another one from this early saint named Eunice Billings, he said, There were so many opinions as who would be the leader of the saints at that time. Sidney Rigdon was sure he was the man. He stood up and declared that he was the one, but he was called down and Brigham Young stood up and spoke with the power and voice of Joseph. He surely had the prophet Joseph's mantle on. There seemed to be no doubt of Brigham Young being the one to lead the saints at that time. So with all these eyewitness categories, once again, just like with the Fruits Bill, no one eyewitness account is very compelling by itself, but the combination of accounts... I think makes for a very compelling cumulative case. Awesome. And a couple thoughts here. I, I know, and I'll just, I'll throw out a criticism of the Brigham Young one, but then use it to kind of play into concurring with the other things you've said. The, the idea behind Brigham being transfigured to look like Joseph and having his voice uh, changed in some way, as your point, as you point out, there's a hundred different uh, accounts that testify that that's what occurred. The critics tend to pick on that because almost entirely those accounts come late. Uh, in fact, you, you see there a mention of President Young. Uh, many of these accounts were, were many, many years after this had occurred. And so the critics like to say, well, hey, somebody started this story and all of a sudden everybody else jumps in the bandwagon. But as you're pointing out, here's the problem. When you go and look at the witnesses as a whole for the restoration, it's really quite powerful. I I look to those who criticize the church, and at the end of the day, their conclusion is that Joseph Smith was a fraud and he made the whole thing up. But I find that problematic. For me, as I look at the restoration story and the players in this in this story, uh, the three witnesses that you point out, Sidney Rigdon, uh, the Whitmer family, including uh, Mother Whitmer and and John Whitmer. Um, if you were to try and come up with a reasonable hypothesis that ends with the conclusion of Joseph being a fraud, you either need these witnesses to be in on it or you need them to be duped. But that doesn't work so well. When you look at people like Oliver Cowdery, 
if if he's being duped, then it doesn't make much sense that he ends up testifying in a firsthand account of both the experiences in the Kirtland Temple being visited by uh, angelic messengers, as well as testifying of having received priesthood at the hands of Peter, James, and John. If you're going to say that he's in on it, then why is he throwing a fit when Joseph is trying to, uh, in one way or another, be with Fanny Elger? And it just doesn't make sense. And you say, okay, that's Oliver Cowdery. That's one example. But this carries out into Sidney Rigdon, who receives section, I think it's 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where he is, you know, Joseph is reciting this revelation for a few minutes at a time, and then he turns it over to Sidney to tell the the people in the room what Sydney is seeing. And so Sydney is absolutely parcel and post in with this revelation. But at the same time, if he is, is being um, duped, that has problems as well. And so you just can't come up with a reasonable hypothesis, hypothesis on how these guys are either all in on it or they're all being duped or they're being duped some of the time, but they're in on it other, you know, other parts of the time. And, and then when they, of course, all are either excommunicated or leave the church on their own in regards to the three witnesses, none of them recant their testimony. The closest the critics come is saying that Martin Harris says he saw these things with a spiritual eye. But I know that in my own personal spiritual experiences, that might describe my experiences probably as well as I could put into words. Yeah, I agree. I think it's possible that maybe a few people might have been duped or, or might have been in on it, but to have... You know, the hundreds and hundreds of people that testified for all of them to be duped and in on it, I think is, is pretty unreasonable. So number three you've got here is sound doctrine. Uh, tell us what you mean by that and give us the compelling reasons there. Yeah, definitely. Now, this is definitely a complex topic, so I have more details and more links that explain the nuances of, of this category. But um, just to put it simply as an introduction for, for this podcast, um, so um, – you know, although the foundational doctrines of Mormonism are very different from what mainstream Christians believe, um, I believe that there are two compelling evidences that the doctrines of Mormonism are, ne- are nevertheless true. Number one, uh, many of the teachings of the early Christian fathers that have been uncovered in just the last 100 years are found to be closer to the teachings of Joseph Smith than they are to those of mainstream Christianity. And a lot of books within Mormonism talk about this, and a lot of books by non-Mormons outline this as well. One of my favorites is by Barry Bickmore called Restoring the Ancient Church, Joseph Smith and Early Christianity. Um, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Another impressive evidence that the foundational teachings of Mormonism are true is that many prominent mainstream Christian scholars of recent decades are starting to espouse ideas that are closer and closer to the doctrines taught by Joseph Smith. Um, so David Paulson, who is the former chair of the philosophy department at BYU, he, he wrote a, just an incredible paper. It's called Are Christians Mormon? And in it, he outlines seven Mormon doctrines that Joseph taught almost 200 years ago and shows how in the last few decades, an increasing amount of respected Christian scholars are starting to hold beliefs that are closer and closer to what Joseph taught. And Truman G. Madsen, who's a famous Mormon scholar, he used to be the chair of the philosophy department before David Paulson took over. He also noticed this trend, and this is what he said. He said, in our time, there are renowned and influential spokesmen and writers in all the major wings of Christendom, and they are not on the periphery, but at the center who are defending and teaching what, a century ago, Joseph Smith almost alone taught. David Paulson echoes this and says, There is considerable contemporary convergence in some Christian quarters towards Joseph's once radical theological ideas. And while the reaction to Joseph's doctrines remains clearly mixed, one thing is certain. The doctrines he proclaimed are not as unique as they used to be. So just to outline a few examples, I have like three or four 
of the foundational doctrines of Mormonism here that um, are shown to have been also taught in early Christianity and also are shown that uh, many Christians are now starting to believe those. Um, One is regarding the nature of God, and I'm not obviously going to flesh this out as, as much as I could normally, but just give you some of the highlights. So we know that Joseph, he taught what you could call a social trinity. So in other words, that the members of the Godhead, although they're unified in almost every conceivable way, they are nevertheless separate beings. Um, but this belief that Joseph taught has not been the mainstream Christian belief since the Council of Nicaea, right, in 325 A.D. But before 325 A.D., um, not only the Jewish Christians, but almost everyone else believed that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were united in will, but separate in rank and glory. For example, one of the most famous early Christians, Justin Martyr, he wrote, he said this, We reasonably worship Jesus, having learned that he is the Son of the true God himself, and holding him in second place, and the prophetic spirit in the third. Um, so there's an increasing number of respected Orthodox Christian scholars that are now holding um, and defending what was for a long time in the West a uniquely Mormon doctrine. Uh, many people, and, and it, he talks about this, David Paulson in his essay, Are Christians Mormon? There are many prominent Christian scholars that are now believing uh, something that was a little bit closer to what Joseph Smith taught. Um, there's a non-Mormon scholar, John Hicks. He talks about the revival of social Trinitarianism as one of the most significant developments in contemporary theology. Um, so that's one area regarding the nature of God. Another area is about faith and works. There's a very interesting study by a man by the name of David Burkott, and he wrote a book called Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up? A New Look at Today's Evangelical Church in the Light of Early Christianity. And what David did is he embarked on a quest to discover what the Christian, early Christians believe and practice before the Nicene Creed. And he notes that um, some people interpret the Bible, of course, as saying we're saved by works. Others interpret it as saying we're saved by grace um, through faith and not of works. And there's a problem here. Um, and the problem is that people like Augustine, Luther, and other Western theologians, they've, conv- they've convinced us that there's this irreconcilable conflict between salvation based on grace and salvation conditioned on works or obedience and what they've done is they've used a false form of argumentation known as the false dilemma by asserting that there's only two possibilities regarding salvation it's either a gift from god or it's something we earn by our works but um, joseph's revelations and the teachings of the earliest christians they taught a concept of salvation that stresses um, the importance of both faith and obedience so um, as david burkott put it in his book the early christians believed that salvation is a gift from god but that God gives his gift to whomever he chooses, and he chooses to give it to those who love and obey him. Um, and, you know, the early Christians, they taught this. So, for example, Polycarp, the personal companion of the apostle John, he taught, he said this, he said, He who raised him up from the dead will also raise us up if we do his will and walk in his commandments. And I think it's important to, to talk about these early Christian fathers because, um, Many people interpret the Bible in different ways, but we know that the early Christians, they were very close to what the apostles believed. So if we see an overall pattern in what the early Christians taught, it can, I think, um, be of great value. Um, so according to Burkott, the ma- this mainstream evangelical interpretation of saved by grace alone, it actually originated with St. Augustine after the Nicene Creed. Um, another doctrine is salvation for the dead. We know that there's some references in you know, to salvation the debt for the dead in the Bible, like in First Peter and First Corinthians. It also says that God is no respecter of persons, but the Bible hasn't given us a really a clear-cut um, interpretation. A lot of people have, you know, had different views about it, but as David Paulson points out in that paper I told you about, Are Christians Mormon? 
almost all of the early church fathers believe that Christ descended into hell after his death and that the dead still have an opportunity to be saved. For example, the early Christian father Clement of Alexandria said, Christ went down to Hades, which means a spirit world or spirit prison, for no other purpose than to preach the gospel. And uh, a non-member named John Sanders, he said that in the 20th century, uh, we have witnessed a tremendous proliferation of belief and salvation for the dead among theologians and biblical commentators from diverse traditions. And I think many people, um, they like the theological fit that this doctrine provides because it preserves Christ's role as sole guarantor of salvation, and it also promotes a fair God. Uh, by not damning those who are unfortunate to grow up outside of the orbit of Christianity. And, you know, what's interesting, I think, Bill, is that um, many of these Christians who are now starting to believe that the dead can be saved, um, this has come through hundreds of years of them, you know, studying and things like that. But, you know, Joseph, his method was 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 mainly through revelation by God. And, of course, God is, is you know, way ahead of, of other people as far as the things like that go. And just the last one I want to touch on has to do with, with deification. Human deification. We know that in the Bible there are various references to us being partakers of the divine nature and that we can be joint heirs of God with Christ. And also the early Christians, they taught this as well. Um, Saint Irenaeus, one of the most famous early Christians, he said, Through the immense love he bore, he became what we are, therefore affording us the opportunity of becoming what he is. Clement of Alexandria said, The word of God became a man so that you might learn from a man how to become a god. And also, once again, David Paulson, he, he notes in his paper, Our Christians Mormon, that in the past 50 years, there's been a steadily increasing amount of interest among Catholics and Protestants regarding the issue of the early church doctrine of deification, which, of course, Joseph Smith taught, and, of course, it was radical during his time. Uh, Non-Mormon Norman Russell points out, It is becoming less necessary in the English-speaking world to apologize for the doctrine of deification. At one time, it was regarded as highly esoteric, if it was admitted to be Christian at all. But in recent years, a succession of works on deification and individual fathers from Irenaeus to Maximus the Confessor has confirmed that the doctrine has a basis in the early church. Um, it's interesting because there is a, a Dominican Catholic priest by the name of Jordan Veda who did his thesis all about the Christian doctrine of, of theosis. And he found that, that this doctrine of human divin, uh, divinization has far too long been forgotten by too many Christians, despite the fact that this teaching is a part of first millennium Christianity. And it's interesting because Jordan Veda, he later investigated the church and was converted to the church. We even have the, the famous C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis uh, believed this, this doctrine as well. He said, The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods, and he is going to make good his words. And this is in mere Christ Christianity. Um, so I, I just believe, once again, that um, the fact that Joseph taught not just one, but many doctrines that seemed radical at the time, but with time have been found to be very consistent with the, the recent discoveries of early Christian teachings, I find that very impressive. And also the fact that many prominent ma mainstream Christian scholars are starting to shift some of their beliefs in the direction of what Joseph taught centuries ago, I think <laughs> is impressive as well, Bill. And, and not just, just like with the eyewitnesses and the fruits of the gospel, um, it's not just one, but there are many uh, many things that I, I think provide a, a compelling cumulative case. Yeah, I think this section to me is the most compelling because it's one of the things that I love as I look at our faith. I can, I can struggle with history. I can struggle with how we're handling a certain social issue at the moment. But when I look at the core doctrines of the church, 
I just think Joseph hits the nail on the head. It reminds me of a story Terrell Gibbons shared where he was asked, he was in a room full of Latter-day Saints, and they were having a conversation about how to give a synopsis of what Joseph gave us through the revelation. And uh, he said, and, and somebody in the room said, I don't even know if I could put it into one point. And Terrell said, it's easy, I'll give you five. And he said, uh, belief in a God whose heart beats in sympathy with ours, a pre-mortal life, uh, work for the dead, eternal families, and this idea of our eternal progression. And just off the top of his head, he names these five core doctrines that really are at the heart of Mormonism. And as you point out, each of those five are not only found within early Christianity, but many scholars and theologians are beginning to come around and recognize, as you point out, after years of study and asking themselves tough questions and allowing the logic to play out, realizing that there may be more truth to these things than they had previously considered. Totally. I, I love this that section, too. So the next one you've got here is uh, credibility of Joseph's revelations. And uh, let's see what you got to say about this one. Yeah, this is another good one. And before I, before I talk about this one, I just want to add one more nugget of evidence to add to the mountain of evidence we've already been amassing in, in this uh, discussion. So um, I think it's important to note that through Joseph Smith, God has revealed more scripture than he revealed through the 10 most prolific prophetic penmen of the past combined including Moses, Isaiah, Paul, John. If you add up all the revelations from those prophets and apostles and the, just the number of pages of Scripture, Joseph, through Joseph was revealed more. Now, just think about that. I, I, I challenge people, you know, try to, try to pretend to be a prophet and publish even one revelation that millions of noble and intelligent people will deem to be from God for centuries to come. I don't think that would be very easy to do. Um, so let's talk about some of the particulars of those revelations. And I, and I separate them into two categories. One has to do with the authenticity of the scripture he revealed, so um, the revelations about the past, and the other one has to talk about um, talks about the revelations about the future or some of the prophecies that that Joseph made. So we know that Joseph revealed scripture that purports to describe real events among God's people in the old and new worlds. So if those scriptures are true, the more we find out about those ancient civilizations this, those scriptures describe, um, we should find more connections between the two. But obviously, if more contradictions are found. Um, then you know the authenticity of those scriptures it would go down. Um, just to, just to, to note, fairmormon.org they've produced a new website called fairmormonevidence.org and they have a list with links to over 200 evidences for the Book of Mormon um, for people who want to check that out. And before I get into just a few of the evidence for the Book of Mormon, I would like to note that um, not just members of the church but non-members have also recognized that that in recent years Mormons have produced a lot of credible scholarship defending our faith and outlining evidences. So, for example, um, Paul Owen and Carl Mosser, who are grad one was a graduate of Biola University, they co-authored a, an important article on Mormonism entitled Mormon Scholarship, Apologetics, and Evangelical Neglect, Losing the Battle and Not Knowing It. And they recognized that in the last few decades, there's a substantial body of, of legitimate scholars within the church that have published a large volume of robust defenses of the church. So, um, the Book of Mormon evidences. Now, I think what's impressive about these evidences is that there are things that have been confirmed that were not only unknowable to anyone in 1830, but many of the confirmations are were the their exact opposite of what was believed by most of the world in 1830. So, um, first of all, talk about some of the connections to the old wor world. So, um, there's something that people call he Hebraisms. So, um, things that are in the literary phrases of the Book of Mormon that we've only recently 
so not at the time that Joseph produced it, but only recently we found to be um, exactly similar to the Hebrew language. So, for example, one of the most famous is chiasmus, and um, the lit- this Hebrew literary device known as chiasmus, it was discovered not until 1967, and it's basically a parallel structure where the, you know, the first and the last, the second and the second to last, and so on, um, you know, um, elements of a sentence or, or a paragraph, they parallel each other going into the center. So, for example, if you say something, you say, you know, it's like A, B, C, D, and then D, C, B, A. And um, it's really impressive because nobody talked about this stuff in, in, when the Book of Mormon was produced, but, but recently they found many impressive chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Um, there's one in Mosiah 5, chapter 10 through 12, and it has A all the way through F and then F back to A. And then in Alma chapter uh, 36, it's an incredible chiasmus where it goes A all the way to Q and then Q back to A. And it's interesting because Jesus Christ is at the center of that. And for people who don't know um, what I'm talking about, they can um, check out the link. But um, there are other other connections um, with the language and grammar of the Book of Mormon and the Hebrew language that they, they sound awkward in English in the Book of Mormon, but they're perfect Hebrew and something that Joseph Smith or, or no one else knew at that time. So a couple examples is, you know, um, it doesn't say, it says the plates of brass in the Book of Mormon and the rod of iron and vapor of darkness. And it should say, in English, it would say, you know, the brass plates or the iron rod. But in Hebrew, that's the perfect way to say it. You also, it says in the Book of Mormon, um, instead of saying to marry a woman, it says take her to wife, which is also something that we wouldn't see in English. Also, we see the, the term stiff nakedness. A lot of these terms that seem really weird in English but have been shown in the links I provide to be perfectly authentic Hebrew. Um, I think one of the best evidences for the Book of Mormon has to do with Nahum and Bountiful. Um, there are a couple places in the Arabian desert where Nephi and uh, Lehi and their family were traveling. And um, I'm just going to um, leave this one short but let people check this out a little bit more. A lot of your listeners have probably already heard about this. But um, there were places, one of the places was called Nahum. And also there was this place, it was a little green strip of land that was right before Nephi sailed to the New World. And they called it Bountiful, and it was supposed to be a place that was rich in honey, iron ore, and there was a great place from which to launch a ship. Nobody knew about Saudi Arabia in these days, and but in the last couple of decades they found a place that's about the right place where the Book of Mormon describes it, and the place is actually called Nahum. And they've also found a little green strip of land that, has it's rich in honey and in iron ore. There's a perfect place from which to launch a ship, um, and just all the details around it seem to fit. So it's just a lot of people say there's not aren't any archaeological evidences of the Book of Mormon, but I think this is a great one. Um, also, Book of Mormon names. You know, if you're trying to make up a book and you're a false prophet, you know, imagine trying to make up fake ancient Hebrew names. Um, you know, that'd be kind of an interesting experiment. But Joseph Smith, you know, introduced all these new names we've never heard about, but in recent decades we found out that these names are authentic Hebrew names. For example, Panchi, Pahoran, Messiah, Sariah, Lehi, Nephi, all names that were never in the Bible. I think that's significant as well. Um, there's also some connections to the New World, some evidences that have to do with the New World. Um, the first one, just right off the bat, is just the fact that there are even complex civilizations in ancient America. You know, when the Book of Mormon was produced, critics laughed because it described complex ancient American civilizations with a written tradition. You know, in 1830, no one thought such civilizations existed in ancient America. You know, they just saw the contemporary primitive civilizations of the Native Americans, and they had a little little to no knowledge of ancient civilizations in America. But in recent decades, as we know, there have been ruins from ancient Mesoamerican civilizations, such as the um, 
the Olmecs and the Mayans that have been found and the Aztecs, and they're found to be very sophisticated and complex with a you know written tradition as well. Um, something else from the New World is uh, the Olmecs and the Mayans. There's a parallel between the Olmecs and the Mayans and, and the Jaredites and the Nephites, and no one has exactly said, you know, the Olmecs were the Jaredites and the Mayans were the Nephites, but the parallel is very interesting to me, I think. So we know that the Olmec civilization existed from about 1700 B.C. and finished out about 400 B.C., and the Jaredite civilization existed roughly from 2000 B.C. to 400 B.C., so about the same years. Also, the Mayan civilization and the Nephite civilization, they also are very close um, as to their inception and to their destruction. Not only that, though, but the Olmec civilization has been discovered to have existed north of the Mayan civilization. And, remarkably, the Jaredite civilization, the Book of Mormon, was um, north of the Nephite civilization. And um, just to give readers a little bit more, or your listeners a little bit more to look at if they haven't already seen this, um, one of the most impress- impressive collection of, of evidences for the Book of Mormon corresponding to the New World is in John Sorensen's recent release called Mormon's Codex, and he's found over 400 correspondences between the Book of Mormon and what we have only recently discovered about the culture of uh, ancient Mesoamerican civilization. So um, there are many other evidences that we could talk about. You know, and once again, like with all the other categories built, I don't think you know one evidence is very compelling by itself, but um, the combination of evidences that the Book of Mormon has correct details about ancient civilizations that no one knew about in 1830, I think is very compelling. Yeah, yeah, and I want to just say before we jump into some of the the modern revelations and things that uh, that we're talking about here, to go through some of these, you know, you have um, Caiusmus, which you point out, which I think is, I think the critics sometimes say, oh, it's a coincidence, or or Dr. Seuss has chiasmus in, in his books, right? That's an easy thing to say because it is true. Nursery rhymes have it. You know, some folk tales have some of that. But Elma 36, as you mentioned, is essentially the entire chapter. And I try, when I first joined the church and found out about chiasmus, I, I sat down with a notebook and tried to write one of my own. It's not an easy thing to do. And, the other thing too, they pick on Joseph because rather than using the Nephite interpreters, he's doing this silly thing of putting his head in a hat with a stone. Well, try to keep a 530 page story together, keeping the years all running along, even though you're using three different dating systems. Try to keep the names of people all together with the exception, I think, of one heir where at one time, uh, the word Benjamin was written and it should have been Mosiah. And then you talk about, you know, the, the places and the geography and keeping all that straight while having your face buried in a hat with a stone. It just, to me, makes it that much more amazing if we're going to say Joseph just completely fabricated the whole thing. You know, you mentioned the Nahum, which I think is, is an awesome. Um, there are some neat things with that. In the Book of Mormon, there's a verse as Lehi is traveling down the coastline that says that they took the path nearer the sea. And you can't take a path nearer unless there's an alternative. And experts say that there are actually two incense trails and that one would have to know both of those trails and take the one less used for that verse in the Book of Mormon to make sense. Uh, I just see, you know, as you're pointing out, he, uh, Hebraism's uh, different names, Nephi and Lehi and Sam being Egyptian names, uh, Laman and Lemuel being Jewish names. And yet here's this father Lehi 
who has a combination of both cultures, admittedly, in the very beginning of the book, using names from both cultures. I just find it amazing. Oh, yeah, and there's just there are so many more evidences we could talk about as well. And like I was saying, there's a, a list of over 200 evidences on that Fair Mormon website. But yeah, it's pretty pretty remarkable. Awesome. So give us the next step where we go. Yeah, from well, just really quickly, um, I'll just list a few of these and let the listeners check out more if they'd like on their own. But prophecies. Um, so let's just run through a few of them. So there's some prophecies about the destiny of the church. There's some prophecies from the Book of Mormon. There's one from the angel Moroni. There's one from Joseph Smith about the destiny of the church. Joseph Smith told people that the church would fill North and South America and it would fill the world. Well, that's happening before our very eyes. I think it's uh, pretty hard to predict in 1830 when there are only a couple dozen members that that the church would fill the whole earth and fill, you know, and, and we are, our members are in every nation almost now. I think that's pretty remarkable. The word of wisdom is also almost a prophecy in itself because part of it says, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I warned you and forewarn you by giving you unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. So it basically says that um, the reason the Lord is asking us to abstain from alcohol and tobacco and other things is because they're going to be conspiring men and, and we saw that happen in the future right i mean just the fact that million, millions of dollars are spent annually in, in deceptive advertising right to induce people to use harmful substances that's that's a fulfillment of prophecy in and of itself but even in the 1930s when the public was becoming increasingly worried about you know the health consequences of cigarettes for example cigarette companies started using um you know, physicians and doctors in, in, in commercials to show that cigarettes were not harm, harmful, you know, basically deceiving the people. And um, so I think that's pretty significant. Also, Joseph Smith, at one point, he told Stephen Douglas, who was going to, who was, uh, you know, a contemporary of his, he said to Stephen Douglas, Judge, you will aspire to the presidency of the United States. And if you ever turn your hand against me or the Latter-day Saints, you will feel the weight of the hand of the Almighty upon you. And you will live to see and know that I have testified the truth to you. Well, later, Douglas did run for president. He actually did speak out against the church and was against the church. He ended up losing to Lincoln 180 to 12 electoral votes, which is one of the biggest upsets in history. And less than a year later, at age 48, he died a brokenhearted man. Um, Willard Richards, this is a very impressive one, I think. Willard Richards was a very large man, and, and uh, Joseph Smith told him, one day you will be in the midst of a shower of bullets. Friends on your left and right will fall, but there will not be a hole in your garment. And... It was exactly fulfilled. One year later at Carthage Jail, where Joseph and his brother Hiram were martyred, John Taylor was there. He wasn't uh, killed. And Willard, he was not struck by one bullet, which is pretty amazing. Um, so, uh, you know, there are other prophecies we could talk about, but um, I'll let people check out the list. But really, I, um, there are more than a dozen. Some people believe there's a lot more than that, but there's at least a dozen, if not more, solid prophecies that, that um, Joseph Smith predicted, and they came to pass and you know once again like the other categories if there was just maybe one or two you know maybe that could be chalked up to you know luck but there are many 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 prophecies and um i think that's another evidence that the that the church is inspired of god and that that joseph was a prophet yeah you know my favorite one which i don't think you mentioned there was the civil war prophecy and uh, the idea that you know here's joseph naming the the actual state in which the uh, war will begin in something like 37 years later, I think was the time frame. That's where, you know, it starts and that's exactly the place that it happens. You know, you're really setting yourself up when you make those kinds of predictions and they don't come to pass. But even the critics acknowledge while they try to explain why it's a, 
a coincidence or why Joseph got lucky in, in getting that prediction right. Even the critics admit that, yep, you know, it did start in Carolina. And so, uh, so there is some weight to that. Uh, but I know I appreciate each of these and I think that, you know, this idea behind, um, you know, the word of wisdom and the revelation talking about it essentially too also being, being a benefit for people's health. I, I find that one to be a nail on the head. And I think many members of the church think that the word of wisdom just was you know, come up with in a vacuum. I don't think that's true. I think that many of these ideas were were circulating at the time, but there were maybe 50 different things that people thought were good for you, people thought were bad for you, and a majority of those were very inaccurate. Joseph seems to pick out, you know, the four or five things that uh, really do impact uh, our health uh, the way uh, he predicts uh and of course, he's claiming it's revelation from God, uh, but he nails that one as well. And so you're right. There's lots of prophecies that have been fulfilled uh, in terms of both uh, our country, the church. You mentioned uh, the revelation about filling the whole earth. And I think some critics will pick on that one, too, and say, oh, come on, Mormons are just a drop in the bucket at 0.2%. But you're talking about the church being gathered in one little small section of Ohio when he gives this. And as you point out, now there are wards and stakes and members across the globe. So I don't think it's fair to completely write that one yeah, off. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. Yep. So we're going into the last section here, which I think you end on this for, for a big reason. I, I'm assuming you would say this is the most important. But number five, personal revelation, a spiritual witness. Give us your rundown of this section. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the first four evidences we've discussed, they're based on human reasoning and logic. And Although these evidences for Mormonism are, Mormonism are compelling, you know, people can always find compelling evidence on both sides of any issue. So with regard to religion, I think God has allowed this so that we're not forced to choose something, but we get to use our freedom to choose. And of course, you know, evidence can compel us in a certain direction, but I believe the final stamp of approval about spiritual truths can come only from the Holy Ghost. Um, you know, hence the, the scripture that says they're ever learning, but unable to come to the knowledge of truth. And so, um, just a couple principles about spiritual revelation. Uh, a confirmation from God by the Holy Spirit is really the only way to have a complete surety if a religious belief is true. And we see this outlined in, in different scriptures. You know, in the Bible, uh, you know, Peter was able to correctly guess that Jesus was the Christ while other people were guessing other things. And, and Jesus said to Peter, he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it, but my Father which is in heaven. You know, so I'm sure, Bill, that there were there were learned there were learned people surrounding Peter who thought that they had evidence to show who Jesus was, but Peter was the only one who discovered the truth, and Jesus told him that it's because it was revelation from God, not because he had definitive evidence discerned through human logic. You know what I mean? Um, you know, and in Philippians also, it talks about how if we pray to God, we'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. So once again, talking about how the revelations of God exceed anything we can understand or and are above that also terrell givens he talks about that there are different ways of knowing um for example there's no moral calculus to tell us that child abuse is wrong you know for example something inside of us tells us that it's wrong and i believe that's the holy ghost testifying the truth to us so um now that we've established that god communicates to us through the holy spirit well how can we discern how can we tell when the Holy Spirit is talking to us? And I believe that there's three primary ways we can tell. One is the Spirit of God communicates to our minds. So, you know, in Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says, Behold, I will tell you in, in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost. So we learn that not only does it come to our heart, but our mind. And in 
the New Testament, uh, Christ says, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Um, we also know that the Spirit of God communicates to our hearts. And this is an interesting one because a lot of people like criticize um, this notion that Mormons believe that because of feelings in our heart that we feel like God is talking to us. Now, because it does say in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful and, and things like that. But um, in the Bible, it does talk about how God can still speak to us through our hearts. And, you know, yeah, there, our hearts can deceive us at times, but also when something is true, God is going to confirm that in our heart. And, you know, we see that in different places in the Bible. You know, in Acts, um, after Peter was preaching to the people, um, it talks about how they were pricked in their heart. And so that means that they felt something, you know. And um, also in, after Christ was resurrected on the road to Emmaus, when he was talking to those two disciples, afterwards they, they said, they said, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? So they were recognizing that that burning they felt in their heart was the Holy Ghost telling them that, that something was true and that they were in the presence of Christ. Um, so also Elder Bednar talks about how in the scriptures understanding is linked to the heart. So we get all these, all these uh, ideas. Now something else, uh, number three, you know, another way God can speak to us besides in our mind and our hearts is um, something that I like to call miracles or coincidences that only seem to be able to be explained if God was the author of them. I think you know what I'm, what I'm talking about here, Bill, but just, just a small little story. For, so, for example, when before I joined the church, I was attending a Cal State Long Beach, and I'd already been attending there for two years. And one day I got the idea to try to find out where the institute was, um, of the Institute of Religion. And, and there was a building there. I just had never seen where it was in two years. But I, would, I had become interested. I had started investigating the church, so I wanted to find out. So I wrote a note to myself and put it in my pocket. Then I went to my first class, and as I was on my way to my second class... All of a sudden, right in front of me, I saw this booth that was set up, and there was a sign above it that said, Welcome to the Institute. And there were two missionaries and two other members of the church. And I later found out that was the very first day of the entire year that they decided to put up that booth. You know, And it happened to be the same exact day that I got that inspiration to write that note to myself to find out where the Institute was. And like I said, I had never seen where it was in the previous two years. And I think, I think God knows how to speak to us. And um, I think you probably know what I'm talking about, Bill. There's just sometimes things that happen that just seem like they're um what are the odds you know that they just seem like they can't be explained by by any other reason besides god his hand being in our lives um so just another thing as well you know since 1830 there are tens of millions of people that have joined the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints because they've experienced god speaking to their souls in beautiful ways through the holy ghost of course these people have joined the church because it's made sense to them as well um so just in conclusion, um, I would just, well, I guess before that we can, can kind of wrap up that section if you'd like. Yeah, and I'll cut that little part out, that little part out just so it doesn't sound awkward, no problem. And I think this sounded much better, by the way, today, Tony, and I really appreciate it. The one thing I probably will do is because I think I sounded really nervous in the very first section, I'll probably use the first section from the original because you, you didn't do much different, but I was kind of rambling there at the end of that section, but I like everything else really good, yes. But let me follow up here. I, I, Tony, I know exactly what you're saying. I've often told people that as I try to navigate both the evidences and the doubts, and I compare it to kind of a, a, a scale, and as I have a bucket on each side of the scale, one bucket has in it all the questions that don't fit, all the things that seem logically not to match up, and all of the contradictions that I find in the gospel, its history. And then in the other bucket on the other side of the scale, 
I have all the evidences, many of the things that we've talked about today. And for me, the tiebreaker, what causes me to keep pressing forward is this fifth section you've talked about. I have had very deep and profound moments where God has, in a very real way, answered a a prayer in a very direct and, uh, I don't want to say forceful as if God is forcing himself onto me, but, but forceful in the sense that it's not just a tingling up the spine or goosebumps on the arm or a warm feeling in, in my chest, but rather very definitive answers that one would have to really go to great lengths to explain away as a coincidence. And I'll just share one example, and I've, I've shared it on the podcast before, but I was woken up out of my sleep one night while serving as a bishop, and uh, I was very directly told a family to pray for. And so in the wee hours of the morning, I don't know what it was, 3 o'clock or so, I got out of my bed and knelt down next to it and prayed. And my wife woke up during the prayer and asked what I was doing. So she remembers this to this day. So it's not like I was just dreaming it and thought it happened. It actually did. And she's a testimony to that. I didn't know why I was praying for this family. The next day I found out that at the very moment I'm praying for them, they had a medical emergency. And in many ways they had felt depressed because of this situation to handle it one way, but then suddenly felt uplifted enough to make a different uh, decision on how they handled the day. And I don't know that it's necessarily my prayer. Maybe it was 10 prayers. I don't know who who all Heavenly Father inspired that night to pray for them. But I know that I am a witness to the fact that God does speak. And and I think this, this last section uh, is the key. And maybe one other thing that I thought of as you were saying it, Moroni chapter 10, 3 through 5, ask us to pray about the Book of Mormon. Ask us to pray about the truth of these things. And I often tell people that even if I were to find a nail in the coffin that the church was not true, I would take the Book of Mormon with me. And people go, why would you do that? If the church isn't true, why would you take it with you? And I, and I tell them, I say, whether the book is historically true or not, I know it is true and that it has brought me closer to Jesus Christ. And Moroni testifies in chapter 10 that that's the entire goal of the book. In fact, we often think what we're asking about is the truth of the doctrines the missionaries are teaching us or the truth of, you know, whether Joseph Smith's a prophet. We certainly can ask those things. But what Moroni is talking about is the truth of the message because he goes on then to say about come unto Christ and be perfected in him and, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness and all those who do that, his grace is sufficient. Um, the Book of Mormon absolutely rings true to me at the very least in the way that it draws me to Christ. And so I think all of us, while we may get excited about Nahum, we may become interested in what the witnesses say. I think the reality is each of us have to have our foundation on a spiritual testimony. Totally. So with that, you uh, you want to give us some things to wrap up? Sure, with? yeah. You know, I just wanted to, just to summarize really quickly, once again, those five categories. I just want to ask um, a couple of questions and then just conclude with uh, how I think this podcast can help people specifically. So number one. Um, my question is, what are the odds that tens of millions of people would find great joy, lasting peace, healing, strength, direction, fulfillment, marvelous pearls of wisdom, and a closer relationship to Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and their loved ones from a religion that was not inspired of God? Question number two, what are the odds that not just a few, but hundreds of people would make up eyewitness accounts testifying to having seen miracles surrounding the early days of the church, if the church wasn't true. Um, number three, what are the odds that Joseph's teachings, which were contrary to the Christian world of his day, would prove 
with time to be very close to the teachings of the early Christian fathers if Joseph was not a prophet. Number four, what are the odds that a false prophet would be able to make dozens of predictions about both the past and the future that would later prove to be right on? And number five, what are the odds that tens of millions of people would feel God's Holy Spirit communicating to them in miraculous and beautiful ways that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true if Joseph was a fraud? So, once again, while these evidences don't absolutely prove Mormonism true, I believe there is a very compelling cumulative case that can be made, and I invite everyone to look at these evidences before they draw conclusions about the church. I also invite all, while realizing there are evidences on both sides, to take it to God and ask him, who is the ultimate source of truth, for a confirmation. And and um, as ancient and modern scripture promises, he will answer in his time and in his way. Um, now, how this can help people, I, I believe that there are a couple different ways this can help people. Um, number one, I believe that um, members and non-members can be helped. For example, I believe that members, um, I believe these, these evidences can help faithful Mormons strengthen their faith, just confirm their faith. I also believe these evidences can help faithful Mormons have a stronger foundation so that the criticisms they hear don't shatter their faith as much. Um, I also believe that these evidences, they basically make it impossible for critics to easily dismiss Mormonism, like many tried to do. And I also believe these evidences can pique the interest of non-members to investigate the church further and ultimately take it to God for a spiritual confirmation. Awesome. Awesome. I, uh, I want to give you a chance maybe just to finish by just sharing your own testimony and uh, we'll end on that note. And I just want to say thank you so much for being on today and, and really appreciate you giving us your time. And, and I think this will be a benefit to many, but with that, why don't you give us uh, your testimony is kind of a conclusion to uh, to this. Thank episode. you, Bill. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, I, I honestly, the way I describe it to many people, Bill, is that I don't believe there are really any mortal words that would suffice to explain um, the blessings I've received since I've joined the church. When I joined the church when I was 22, you know, um, I experienced um, so many wonderful things, not only the things that I learned, but the things that I felt. And um, they're just really indescribable, um, just deep within my soul. And, you know, um, being baptized, serving a mission, and just the last eight years that I've been a member, it's just confirmed to me more and more um, that the church is inspired of God. And um, like you talk about, you know, I don't know the, all the answers to everything, um, but there have been plenty and continued wonderful experiences and, and testimonies from the Holy Ghost to my mind and to my heart and to my soul um, that this church is inspired of God. And, you know, if I was to leave, just like, you know, Christ said to his apostles, to where would I go? I, I believe that the combination of the things that we've talked about today in the podcast, um, to me, they testify that Mormonism um, has more of a quality and quantity of, of blessings and, and, and opportunities than, than in any other religion that I've found. I'm going to continue to search and learn about other religions, but up until this point, um, I believe that it is. And I'm just so thankful. I so thankful for my testimony that God lives and that he loves us and that Jesus Christ is my savior and that Joseph Smith was and is a prophet and that the church that he established still exists today and that the priesthood keys have passed down to today and that um, there's just so many wonderful things about it and uh, leave that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
sing. 